Learn Persian with Chai and Conversation, Lesson 91. And welcome to lesson 91 of Chai and Conversation. In this lesson, we'll be going over the poem Bishnu Azne by Rumi, actually one of his absolute most famous poems. In this lesson, we are going to go over the whole poem with our friend Muhammad Ali, better known as Persian Poetics. We'll discuss the meaning behind the poem and get a good introduction to Rumi as a poet. Please remember that this lesson is only one part of our learning system. We'll be going over the vocabulary and phrases learned in this poem in this lesson, but I'll be going over those in more detail in subsequent lessons, so be sure to look out for those. In addition, this lesson is absolutely free, but to get the most out of these lessons, you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of membership to Chai and Conversation on our website at chaiandconversation.com with Chai spelled C-H-A-I. With a membership, you'll get the full transcript of these lessons You'll be able to hear the poem line by line, word by word, so you can really understand it and master it. And you'll also get a full PDF guide to this lesson and get access to all the learning materials we've ever made. So be sure to check that out on our website at chaiandconversation.com. We'll talk more about this after the lesson, but for now, let's get right into the discussion with Muhammad Ali of Persian Poetics. Okay, so we're back with Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, thank you for joining. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. We recorded an interview about how uh, he grew up in Detroit, but was very interested in uh, Iranian culture and the Persian language and started really diving into Persian poetry. So I asked Muhammad Ali if he could pick a few poems and we could really deeply dive into them. So I'm excited to do this poem today. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about Masnavi in general? The, so the Masnavi is Rumi's main work, basically. So Rumi left behind a, a, a few different works. One is a collection of sermons that he gave that people wrote down. Another one is a similar type of work. But the two most famous ones are definitely any Persian speaker, and especially if they're raised in a Persian-speaking country like Iran, Afghanistan, would definitely know, is the, the Qazal poems, which is in the Divan al-Shams, and the Masnavi. So the Ghazal poems are a huge collection of love poems. And that's where a lot of the famous Rumi poems that we know of comes from. Like, for example, I know you uh, have translated Dar Havoya through Zoshab, that one. That's one of the Ghazals. And basically any, especially Iranian, would know these songs because they appear in a lot of contemporary music like Shahram Nazari, Shajarian, Mohsen Chawushi. They're very popular now. They've kind of resurged in popularity. But this book that we're uh, covering, the first poem of the very, the very first introductory poem, it's the Masnavi, which is a longer narrative poem. It's actually pretty long. It's six books collected into one. And it's a bunch of stories, but basically they're all connected with lessons that are given there. And it's a very, it's a very spiritual work. So it's, it's, very, it's preferred by Sufis or people who have like mystical leanings, although definitely people of all you know, religious orientations enjoy it and read it, but it's it's intended, it wasn't originally intended as like a manual for Sufism. Because Rumi, you know, as we know him as like a famous poet and all that, he was initially, he was like a Sufi, teaching Sufi disciples who are trying to uncover, you know, spiritual truths, as he would say, 
in uh, his Masnavi. Right. And so maybe going back, let's talk a little bit about Rumi. What is his, uh, so you said he was a spiritual teacher. And then what is uh, Divana Shams and who is Shams? Can you tell a little bit of a story? Sure, sure. And does he come sure. up a lot in the Masnavi too? So Rumi was, he was born in the eastern ends of what was then a bunch of disconnected Let's say, I don't want to say empires because it wasn't like the pre-Islamic Persian Empire. But basically, during Rumi's time, there were a bunch of different dynasties that were controlling what we would consider kind of like the Iranian cultural sphere. But they weren't necessarily like a modern country in that sense. So, if, so he was born in what currently is the uh, Republic of Afghanistan. But in that time, it was part of a kind of like a greater Persian cultural sphere. I know we love to talk about this as Iranians. Right. And then his his family, uh, foreseeing very smartly, his dad especially, foreseeing the Mongol invasions, moves westward, goes through Af modern Afghanistan into the modern country of Iran, and then goes to the, the country of modern country of Syria, and then ends up in, at the time, was the Seljuk uh, uh, dynasty, which... If, you, if uh, the listeners are familiar with Iranian history, they're one of the many dynasties that we've had. And he ends up settled there. And he kind of grows up in a normal household that was religiously inclined. His dad was an Islamic scholar. And I should note that back then there were no modern universities and all these jobs. Basically, if you were educated, you would become either an Islamic scholar or, uh, let's say, a musician or maybe a military leader. There was very few roles that you could do. So his dad was an Islamic scholar and he, like people back then, inherited his dad's job. That was the norm. You know, your dad was a goldsmith, you were a goldsmith, etc. So he kind of grows up as an average Islamic scholar. He's a well-known person, literate, well-read and all that, but nothing too special, right? Just like an average person living an average life. And then a person named Shamsa Tabrizi comes along. Shamsa Tabrizi was what we call a wandering dervish. These people were like ascetics, as we would say in English. They were like monks. They lived detached from the world. They would go from town to town doing basic jobs, maybe teaching or doing small work, collecting a little money, and go to the next place. They kind of were like, maybe you could picture like a Buddhist monk or uh, a Christian monk living in a monastery. They tried to detach themselves from the world as much as possible. And Shams would go from place to place looking for students or people to teach these spiritual truths that he had learned. So he arrives one day in Konya, or Glonye, and as we'd say in Farsi, in modern-day Turkey in central Anatolia, and he hears that there's this famous scholar named Rumi. So he approaches Rumi in the middle of the street. This is one of the stories. There's a few stories, but this is the one that I prefer. He approaches Rumi, and Rumi's getting followed by his students. You can imagine, like, a university professor is really beloved, like walking in the street and a few people are like, hey, can I ask you a question, etc. And, you know, back then, people who knew things were very few, you know, maybe like 4%, 5% of the people in a city were literate at all. So like this is someone who, who knows how to read. It's a big deal, you know. And again, back then, there, there weren't as many doctors and all these things. Like whatever question you had, you would just kind of ask like the, the religious person, like they would give you medicine and all this stuff. So Rumi's getting followed in Shams with like, dirty, torn clothes, approach, like, confronts him and gets in his face. And then Rumi's like, what are you doing? Who are you, you know? And then Shams says, I heard you're one of the people of knowledge in this city. I have a question for you. So Rumi says, okay, sure, ask me. And then Shams says, who was the greater mystic? The Prophet Muhammad or Bayezid Bastami? Bayezid Bastami was just another Sufi mystic from 
a Bastam in modern Iran. And Rumi says, of course, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, you know, what kind of question is this? And then Sham said, but then why is it that Bayezid al-Bastami said, I have reached God? He said, uh, Sopani means like, we usually say Subhanallah, Sopani, like I am like one with God almost like at the same level. But Muhammad said, I have not known you the way I should have known you, or you are due to be known. So, I mean, I, I, he felt like he didn't know God enough. And then Rumi said, that's because Bastami was limited in his mystical, spiritual understanding. But Muhammad was unlimited. There was no limit to how much he could know. And Shams says, like, okay, I'll take you as a student. <laughs> and you can imagine, like, what that would be. Like, if, like, a modern equivalent, like, a homeless person approaches, like, a really famous <laughs> professor and is just like, I'll take you as a student. So Rumi, <laughs> Rumi and Shams spent 40 days in seclusion. And Shams is teaching Rumi. Uncovering these these uh, mystical truths, let's say, and then Shams disappears, and Rumi's like devastated. So Rumi, word comes that Shams went to Damascus. This was normal. Shams goes, so he's kind of like a grifter, as we would right, say, God forbid. Right. He's he's on to the next city. He's like a backpacker. Better word. <laughs> and then Rumi sends his his son. He's like, no, 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 go bring him back. He has to come back. So his son goes to Damascus, brings him back to to Konya, and Rumi's like, look, I want you to stay here and just live here. I'll set you up. And back then, it wasn't like private homes. It was like a big compound home, you know, like a home, a, a place where you cook, a bathroom place, kind of like old homes in Iran are kind of like this in a way. So he was like, I'll, I'll give you a, a room in my home. I'll marry you to one of like a, someone and you can just stay here. So Ru Rumi has Shams married to someone, but the marriage doesn't work out. And then they continue studying. And then one day Shams is just gone. But this time it's for good. Ah. And there's many theories as to what happened. Some people say that Shams just was going to move on anyway. And he wanted to teach Rumi one last lesson, which is the lesson of separation. Other people say that the people who were around Rumi were jealous of the new relationship that had formed. And they disliked that Shams had kind of transformed their very mainstream, moderate, you know, lukewarm cleric into like this person who's spending 30 days and 40 days in seclusion and who's wearing tattered clothes and who's saying poems and doing all these like weird things, you know? So then Shams goes and Rumi, I don't even, I don't want to say snapped, but basically like something happened and he just kind of goes crazy. He starts like uttering poems out of nowhere, like ah. in Arabic, Turkish, Persian, Greek, like from any language. And his, his students would actually follow him around and be ready to write it down because he would just utter it. Uh -huh. And if you read his poems, you can kind of tell that because he repeats a lot of words. Like he says, divanisho, divanisho, di, like go crazy, go crazy, yeah. go crazy. And then some of the lines, like there's, and there's so many of them. There's like thousands and thousands of his poems. Like I did the math. He would have had to write like at least four or five poems a day to be able to write that many poems in, in that time. Like just like, and I'm talking like poems that have like 20, 30 lines in them. Like no joke. Wow. And then on top of that. He writes this huge book that we're going to read a bit of today, the Masnavi. So yeah. at the end, he ends up leaving like, I want to say like 80,000 lines of poetry, something like insane, like unimaginable. Wow. And he becomes like, he just, I don't even know how to, I'm mean, like at a loss for words to describe it, but he gathers all these students and even non-Muslims, like Greeks, there were a lot of Greeks there living in the time. So Greek Christians started like following him, like we want to learn more from you. And there's also Jewish people who were following him. Like he kind of transcended all understandings that we have of like what a religion is or what faith is or what a faith group is. He kind of was like a very universalist figure, right? And then he gathers all these students and then, you know, one day he passes away. So the students say, we can't let these teachings go. 
So they record all of his writings and preserve it. And they found a Sufi order called the Mevlevi in, in Turkish, the Mevlevi Sufi order, which just means coming from Molana, from his name. Yeah. And that order exists till this day. Till this day. And they're, they're known for the famous spinning Sufi dance that a lot of people who've, who've been to Turkey or they've seen it online. They're, they're famous for that practice that he started where he would, he would spin around. And I mean, you know, still, I mean, after all this time studying him, I still feel at a loss for words to describe him or his relationship with Shamsur. But I mean, <laughs> inshallah, that was the best description that I could give for now. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, these poems have a lot of layers and a lot of different interpretations. And, you know, mm-hmm. some people uh, say that it's very literal and it's about wine and it's about you know mm-hmm. uh physical love and it's about all these things and then some people uh see it as just you know spiritual and you know it's about right, god right, right. and it's about getting lost in in god and and mm-hmm. and then there's like a balance of all these things and saying okay it's about right, all right, of yeah. these things so i'm excited to hear your interpretation so we're going to read read this poem so for the first one uh you chose bishno in ne um and ne is a flute or a reed an instrument that is played in in Iran. And so, and this is a poem about separation. And why did you choose this poem? Sure. So I think this is a good, a good poem to open up with Rumi because in a way kind of encapsulates his whole personality and his view on life. Like it's basically about him. And I find it really interesting because he didn't want to write this really long book that this is opening with. He was approached by a student saying, you know, we want a, a work where all your lessons are written down. We, we don't want to just be oral and then it's lost. Like we want something on paper so that we can pass it and, and teach, etc. So Rumi actually pulls out a little scroll from his like turban or hat or whatever uh-huh. he was wearing. And he had already had this. So he said, why don't we make this the intro and then we'll start from there. Uh-huh. So I think that this poem has, has a nice story and, and it, it kind of I feel like we can relate to it as as people who are experiencing this this diaspora situation, we can kind of relate to the, the messages and we'll see as, as we get into it. Cool. Okay. So then uh, you're going to read a line in the original Persian. And then is this your translation that you sent me? Yes, this is my translation that I've... Uh, Wonderful. <laughs> so Muhammad Adi, he has translations himself that you can see on his Instagram and his website and his Twitter, Persian Poetics. Um, so that's where this is from. So yeah, go ahead. All right. Should we start? Yes. Sure. Okay. بشنوین نی چون شکایت می کند از جدای ها حکایت می کند Listen to this reed flute how it complains it tells stories of separation pains تزنیستان تا مرا ببریدند در نفیرم مرد و زن نالیدند Since they cut me away from the reed bed men and women have cried into my head so this is, if we picture a wooden flute, not like a, a metal flute that is common in Western classical music, in Iran, Turkey, etc., they were made out of wood, and they were originally reeds. They kind of look similar to sugar canes, and they would get cut away. So Rumi here is comparing himself to like a reed that's from a bed of reeds, you know, with all the other reeds, and it's cut away and taken away from its source. So the same way that he was from eastern, uh, the eastern lands of where Persians lived and cut away and taken away to Turkey which was like a world of distance then. I feel like we can also relate to this as people who've been moved away from where we're from, right? Right. Sine khaham sharh sharh az firaq ta beguyam sharh dard ishtiyaq. I seek a heart from longing torn apart so the pain of yearning I can impart. Har kasi ke dur mand az asl khish 
باز جوید روزگار وصل خیش From their roots, whoever remains away seeks a reunion with the self one day. من به هر جمعیتی نالان شدم. جفت بدحالان و خوشحالان شدم. In every crowd, I cried out in despair. With happy and sad, I became a pair. هر کسی از زن خود شد یار من. از درون من نجست اسرار من. Whoever thought they confided with me did not find the secrets inside of me. All right. So all that's, right. That's, the, that's really nice. So I love the way you translated it. I, how did you get all the, um, how did you, you're, you're <laughs> how did you do the meaning and also get it to rhyme? Uh, hours and hours yeah. of banging my head at the dictionary, yeah. <laughs> trying to find words. And that's ultimately the struggle that I've kind of confined myself. I want to make it rhyme like it rhymes in Persian. Yeah. So to find the meaning and also like find words that, that line up, a lot of thesaurus flipping. And wow. <laughs> That's really impressive. And yeah, a lot of the, I mean, I was just thinking of the translation as, as I was reading. It's really well done. It's kind of like a puzzle, isn't it? Like you have to find right, what right. works and like which direction to put it in. Exactly, and... <laughs> exactly. That's kind of the fun of the, the challenge, right? That's part of it. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, so hopefully um, you listened and you kind of got the feeling of the poem. But now we're going to go through, you know, two line by two line and, and really go through it. So, so first of all, in this sure, poem... Sure. So Ghazal has a really specific structure, right? So in these poems, mm-hmm. is there a very specific structure? Absolutely. So the lines, each of them have the same amount of syllables and the length of syllables. So if you were to say any uh, line, but the person didn't know Persian and all they could hear is like the sounds, they could notice that be Bishno inne, az ha, kaznayistan, darnafiram. They all have like the same length and, and width of syllables. And a very tuned ear, like if you meet someone who's from Iran and they've studied Persian poetry, they can tell if a, if a, like a syllable is missing. They can say, vaznish sangin shod or sabok shod. Like the, the meter or the rhyme is like, it's like heavy or, or too weak here, like something's missing. And in the same way, all the letters rhyme. All the, I'm sorry, the lines. Shikayat mikonad, hekayat mikonad, bebori dan, nali dan. So this is kind of what makes it fun to read, right? Right. Because it has a rhythm when you're reading. It feels like, you know, like it's going like uh, predictable up and uh, ups and downs. And they also the letters rhyme. And this is this is what makes it really fun compared to prose. When you're reading it, it's just like right. it keeps it. Ba- it kind of feels like it's just bouncing around, you know, the words. You know, you read Hafez and stuff when you're like in love. But, you know, yo, I, when I read picture Rumi, I picture like a... My grandma sitting in the corner reading, <laughs> like thinking and scratching her head and like pondering, you know. <laughs> okay, so let's do a little bit of that now. So let's go through. Sure, sure. If you can read the first two lines again and let's talk about it. Sure, sure. Bishno inne chun shikayat mikonad. As jodaiha hikayat mikonad. Okay, so jodai means separation and shikayat mm-hmm. means complaint or mm-hmm. maybe a little bit even stronger than complaint right it's like a right right yeah constant complaint it's like, like it's like an it's like a complaint that has a bit of like anger maybe as well like cuz you can also say like nerzadan like you know like a kid complaining right. but shikayat is like in iran for example if you want to press charges against someone the word is shikayat right right yes exactly so it's kind of serious it's, it's not a joke the beginning, it starts with, it's so interesting. It starts with bishno. It's like a command. 
And this is kind of true. It's like a command for the whole book. It's like, listen. And Molana here, it, like different poets, they speak at different angles with you. Like sometimes uh, when Chayyam talks to you and Hafiz talks to you, you feel like they're a buddy talking to you. But when Rumi talks to you, he's like an elder. He's like your grandfather and you're a kid. And he's like, Bishno, I'm going to tell you something about like what life's really about. So in it, that's like the first word, you know, like the first word's telling you you're, you're going to hear something like serious, like sit, sit right. down, listen, don't be bozzy goose. You know, I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then right. when he says, Inne, hear this flute, right? He doesn't say like, hear, um, like when he says this flute, it's like hear from me, you know, like he's calling himself a flute. Right. So, there's like a lot, of, a lot of meaning in those first three, three words. This right. two, these two lines, I have a commentary uh, behind me of the Masnavi. Uh-huh. For these two lines alone, there's like three pages of writing. Wow. Just like summarizing all the opinions and theories and all this stuff. <laughs> wow. And then, okay, what's the, what's Hikayat mean? Sure. Hikayat is an Arabic uh, borrowing into Persian. It's kind of like less common now. You wouldn't hear it in, in really spoken Persian, like what, what we, you would be focusing on. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, basically like a story, but a story with a, with a moral. I think the word fable is similar, but fables can be, I think, are fake usually, like make-believe. But hikayat isn't necessarily fake. But it's kind of similar. Like a, like a parable, I guess, would be a good English equivalent. Okay. And it rhymes really nicely with shikayat. So, <laughs> so that yeah, works really exactly. well. Exactly. So, it's, so uh, yeah. we're being asked to listen to these complaints, and it's, it's about to tell us a story. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's go to the next right, couple right. lines, and let's start hearing the story. This is now from the point of view of the read, right? right? right. Okay. So you okay. can imagine like little quotation marks, like right. Kaznayistan to maro beburi daand, dar nafira mardozan nali daand. The translation was: Since they cut me away from the reed bed, men and women have cried into my head. And uh, I want right. to point out here that it does make a distinction, mardozan, because we don't have pronouns in the uh, Persian language, so right, you exactly. really have to go out of your way to say. It's a man and woman crying into my right, head. Right, right. So it's- I think this is a, a really cool uh, element of Persian that many languages I wish they would have is this, this ability to be ambiguous with gender is so cool. Like these poems are so open to interpretation. Is it about a god, a man, a woman, like a thing? Because that ooh, that ooh is so perfect. Like yeah. the ability to just keep it ambiguous, right? Right. But anyway, so basically... This like image that he's starting with is like you picture a neistan, like a calm water, a bunch of reeds growing out, and someone comes along with an axe and like picks the, the perfect thing and chops it. It's like I'm going to turn this into a flute, you know? Right. And then, so that's the first part of this second line. And the second part, he's saying da nafiram, and nafir is like a really archaic word. I think even modern Persians don't know the word, but it's like the inside of a flute. I think it's called a cry in English. The cry. Okay. Um, like the internal parts. So he's saying men and women have nalidan, like they've cried out. Right. And it's funny because the word cry is like, it can be to play like a flute or it can be, but here nalidan is like to cry in pain or sadness. Yeah. It's kind of like wailing. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting that he mentions mardazan because back then in the medieval Persian society, Gender segregation, I mean, if we think it's kind of like strict now compared to like America, back then it was super strict, right? So right. I think this he puts this purposely. And some of the commentators have have talked about this. Like, why did he say Mardazan? Why not like Insan Ha or Adam Ha? Right. Why specifically Mardazan? I like what what was the purpose of of making sure to point out that it was women as well? Yeah. So what do you think? 
I'm, I personally don't know. I, I'm not necessarily inclined to every opinion. Maybe he just means like uh, every single person because there's this like connotation in, uh, in old Persian writing. Like if you just say Mardan, it can mean like important men, like, you know, the, the dude sitting in like the Sultan's palace. But if you say Mardan, it gives an idea of being like everyone, you know, from your commoner to like uh, your important people, every single person. Right, right. right. So, and it's specifically including women because, again, back then it was a male-centric society. So when you just speak about people, I mean, literate people were basically almost only men, unfortunately. So right. it was basically understanding was like, we're just talking about guys here, you know, just the dudes. Right. But then when you say Zen as well, it indicates like not just men, but also anyone. Right. Right. Well, yeah. So. And it's using very dramatic language. That's what stands out to me. Like, Biboridan, like you said, it's like cutting away, like really violently in a way. And then Nolidan isn't, it's not just like, you know, singing into the reed fruit. It's like putting all of your, like, you know, pain into It's It's all about pain, Definitely. isn't it? Both of those words, Biboridan yeah. and Nolidan are about pain. Let's, let's, uh, let's go to more pain. Sine khaham sharhe sharhe az all right, so I seek a heart from longing torn apart. So the pain of yearning I can impart. So it's interesting because he says khaham is like I want. Right? It's it's inter- it's not necessarily like seeking, but it's like it's almost like I desire as well. Like seeking almost feels like, oh, I'm gonna go to the store and I like if I see what I want, I'll get it. But Chaham is like, I really desire it. Like, I deeply want it. Like, I'm still yearning to find that person. And Sharh is Arabic here. But it, it, it's almost like the words almost have their own imagery to them. Like, Sharh Sharh. Like, you can imagine. Like, it almost sounds like something getting cut when he says it, right? And, I mean, we would say, like, Bodhi De Shode. But that doesn't give the same energy as Sharh Sharh, you know? Right. And then Furag is, is like, that idea of, of, like, being distant from the lover. Mm. So I can. And then he says, Tabiguyam. So I can give like the explanation. You know, Sharh is an, another Arabic word. It means like to explain something. The pain of yearning. Right. So what is he yearning for? What is your idea here? It's like a return. I mean, this is a common theme in, in Rumi and also most of like the mystical Persian poems. It's like a return, right? But what is it a return to? Is it a return to his roots? And then are those roots like literally where he's from or is it a return to God or, or what is that return? You know, this is like what's being elaborated on in the whole in the whole work, basically. Right. And like we said, there's so many layers of interpretation. So we can interpret it in a way of like, yeah, being lo- physically away from the location that we should have been born or were born. And then but we can also interpret it as like all humans have been torn away from the divine. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Then he continues, Har kesi ku durmand az aslikhish baz juyad ruzegare vaslikhish. And this seems like the, uh, the main po- point of the poem. Right, right, yeah. From their roots, whoever remains away seeks a re- reunion with the self one day. So can you go through this and really give us the... Sure, sure. So basically saying any person who remains far from the asl the origin or the, the basically we I mean we say now asl means like it's not fake, like oh this is an asl like bone or whatever. But here it means like the, the origin, the essence of khish. And khish is like a old old word for khod, right? As we would say like khodama. Self. Khod. 
Right. So you're saying like from the, the truth, the true origin of yourself will again seek out the day that they return to the self, right? So here, it's kind of going one level deeper than just like the physical place. He doesn't say whoever's far from their birthplace or their homeland. It's like a level deeper. It's like whoever is far from their self in actuality, they'll, they'll, they'll seek out when they can return to that self. And I think this is really amazing because I've met people, Iranian Americans, also, you know, Americans of other backgrounds from other countries, from Turkey, Lebanon, wherever you can imagine. And they, they do this, this thing where they're, or not they do this thing, but they have this identity crisis growing up. They're thinking, well, I'm from this country. I speak English fluently. I'm American. You know, I grew up here. I am American, but a part of them feels like they're not fully with themselves right now. I feel like to some level, we've definitely all felt this. And then, you know, as we both have come, we tried this, they say, okay, I know the solution. Well, not to say to speak for you. I don't know if that was your feeling 100%, but I've seen this a lot. Where they say, I'll go back to where my parents are from, and then I'll figure it out there. So they go to Beirut or Cairo or Tehran or uh, Delhi, wherever they're from, and then they're there. And they still don't feel the, the closeness. If anything, maybe they feel more far. Because before, in their mind, Iran is this place of like, that's where home is. That's the place. But then when they go there, they're like, wait a minute, this place also isn't home. And then that's like even more confusing, you know? <laughs> so then Rumi is saying the home, he's clarifying, maybe in case we were, we were like mistaken in the first few lines. I'm not talking about like Balkh or, or like Mashhad or wherever I happen to be born from. I'm talking about like a deeper understanding of that, right? It's almost like there's this thing like you can't cross the same river twice where like once you leave a place, you can never truly go back to it. Like I miss college, but I'm sure if I signed up for classes again, I wouldn't feel like I was at college again, right? <laughs> right. So it's like this idea of that the return to that place, it's not like a physical location return, you know? Right. It's like a deeper level. Right. Nice. Okay. So then the next couple lines. من به هر جمعیتی نالان شدم جفت بدحالان و خوشحالان شدم Okay So first I don't know this word نالان شدم نالان is it's like an old um, like I don't even know I think پسوند is a Persian word like postfix uh, on is like when you're actively doing something we kind of use it sometimes like the word on is from like looking nigat like uh, mm -hmm. it means like we use it to mean worried but it means like looking out into the distance okay so it's like a nalidan instead of nalidan it's nalan right but it's like the active i think it's like the active uh participle I, I don't know what the english word is exactly but basically means like you're doing it at that moment essentially then oh we are going back to we had nalidan in the very beginning right or no shikayat we had Right, yeah. No, Nalidan. Yeah, Nalidan, we, did, we have did have that. Have it, yeah. Oh, that's right. Okay. okay. So this is kind of like pointing to that line. Right, in a way. right. Okay. So, so sorry, the translation is In every crowd, I cried out in despair. With happy and sad, I became a pair. Now, I want to really um, go focus on these words happy and sad because uh, this is one of those things that you just cannot translate. Bad halan and khush halan. Yeah. It's such a beautiful concept. Can you explain the concept of hal? Exactly. So hal is like the English translation, like you said, it's so weird. It's like state. Right. But we, when I hear state, it's not the same as hal. Hal is just like, how's everything all together? When you say like, how are you in English? It's like, how are you today? Is your day good? Did you have like a bad hair day? Did you, <laughs> did you get your coffee or not? You know, like 
that's what kind of like was last night fun. That's kind of what, like how you how are you is. But like Paul is like, are you happy in life? Are you sad? Like, are you feeling fulfilled? You know, like how's your haul? Like the whole thing. <laughs> right, right. It's so hard to translate, and it's a big concept in Sufism, like halan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so so hal can be um, a state of being. Maybe that's a good way to say it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I guess like how are you does kind of get to it. How are you, <laughs> you know? How is your being? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's it's also a cultural difference because I remember at least in the Midwest, we're kind of more similar to Iran than in other places in the West. For example, I um, I had a teacher who was from Northern Europe in high school in America. And he said the first day I was in America, someone, uh, I asked someone, how are you, to like say hi to them. And they started telling me actually how they were doing. And I thought, <laughs> whoa, wait a minute. Like, we don't actually say that. Like, we don't elaborate on our day to strangers. So in America, we, we're kind of different. Than, but in some cultures, like people don't like start talking about like making small. Again, Sweden, I know, for example, they don't make like personal small talk to strangers. Right. But in Iran, we're not like that. Like in Iran, you get in a cab and you're like, and the guy's like, oh, I owe money to my cousin and my wife is yelling at me every day. Right. And like my son's doing bad at school. And so right. we're very, we're very like that. <laughs> right, right. But so, okay, so he's saying, man behar jam'i nalan shodam. So jam'i is a crowd of people, like you translated crowd. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so a group of people. So to any group that I became a pair in terms of um, like this crying out in despair. So if anyone blew into me, basically, right? Yeah. Is that how you see it? So it's kind of like saying like we say in, in Persian as well, like we dance or sing to any song. So he's saying like if I was with happy people, I'd be happy. If I was, you know, with sad people, I would be sad. But the way I kind of interpret this is related to the next line because he says, as we read earlier as well, every person thought they were, they knew me. So he's saying like, and we kind of, everyone relates this on, to this on some level. Like you go to somewhere, you know, you make small talk, like you're with the vibe, but maybe you feel alone inside at that moment. Like you don't feel like you're really connected. You're just kind of like going through the external motion. Someone says a joke, you laugh, you know, things like that. Right. But maybe inside, like you're bothered by something and you're not really there, all there. Right, right, right. And this is kind of like what he's talking about. Like I was with every group of people, some were happy, some were sad, whatever. But I wasn't truly there. I was only like there in the exterior, basically. Right. Well, let's read the last line. Then. Yeah, sure. It says, Har kesi az zan khud shud yar man, az darun man, na just asrar man. Okay, so whoever thought they confided with me did not find the secrets inside of me. Okay, so so let's go back. Let's go back to this khushalan and badhalan. So, jufte badhalan va khushalan shudam. So I became one with the happy and the sad so then he's saying or the, the read is saying that uh that it's empathizing right right yeah so it is empathizing with them but then in the end it says that even though i was empathizing people thought they like understood me and they knew me i, I think this yeah, is very they thought they really knew me right i think this right, is yeah, very yeah. common like you go somewhere and like someone just talks your head off and they don't realize like you haven't said anything and they say oh we're such good friends right right yeah and it's just you've been giving and like empathizing right and it's this feeling i think people who feel like molana might feel generally is like wherever they go whoever they talk to maybe it feels superficial or it's not 
totally fulfilling or they don't feel connected to their friends. And I mean, some people even feel this way sometimes with like their closest relationships with their parents or spouse, whatever, their siblings or kids. Like they feel like there's a, they're connected in a way, but it's like, there's a level, there's like a superficialness, but like you truly don't know. And sometimes I don't remember which Western philosopher said this is like, language is not like it's not unlimited it's still limited like humans can never truly fully explain how they feel to anyone right. right there's always a limit of how far you could explain a feeling so maybe rumi is saying like i when i was with the happy people they thought they were my friend like we're cracking jokes rumi's laughing you know we're a bunch of pals hanging out maybe he was like with a sad person i empathize with you and they thought well like we're really yards like we would say you know yada but at the end no one truly got to know him out of all those people right and no one because it's a secret it's not like something superficial right there's like a secret down there and no one truly understood it or was able to get to it so as daruneman najust so najust is like didn't seek right like they didn't, right, didn't seek. seek or so right, right. from within me they didn't seek. And what's asrar? I don't know that word. So asrar is a, it's an Arabic uh, plural. It's the it's a plural of sir, which means secret, raz. Okay. As we would say in Persian. Okay. Azaruniman <laughs> najust asraruniman. So even though I was empathizing, we were having this good time, you know, telling these secrets, they didn't try to find these They secrets. didn't, exactly. They didn't look. Right. It's like the most precise, like, seek, look. They didn't truly look what was down there. It was just like a superficial interaction. Yeah. So, so then what is this? How do you interpret this as a whole in terms of like, why weren't they seeking it? What, what's going on here? What is he trying to say? Hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's because it almost reminds me of the episode with, with Shams where he approaches him and he's in the, the streets with all these people around him. Maybe anyone who's like well known and has a good position in life. They kind of feel like externally things fine, like oh, I have a good job and people know me, I'm important, like people are following me in public. But those people who are following me around, like they really know who I am, or is it just because like I'm an important person and I teach in a like the, that times equivalent of a university and like uh, my dad was a famous person as well and like I work for the the king of this city. Is that is that the reason they're following me? Or do they really know who I am? You know, like all these, and I think maybe. People, I mean, you hear oftentimes famous people are the most depressed people in, in society, unfortunately. Because, like, all this, like, fame and fanfare and whatever can, like, create a superficial feeling of happiness, but it's very hollow. It's just, like, think deeper there. So maybe that's what Rumi felt like after, I want to say, at least 40 years of, of living a normal life with all these people around. He was like, well, has anyone truly gotten to know me? Or do you just know, like, the, I don't know, the famous version of Rumi? Right. And I like it because I'm sure, like, you know, the nay is a very common object it's not expensive anyone can have a nay and i feel like he's saying okay from the beginning he's like like let's finally listen to this flute that's been like yeah. singing to us all this time like it sounds like it's happy it sounds like it's sad but what is it really saying right right yeah listen to it speak for itself i think i did right that was interesting you pointed that out it's like not what other people are saying through right. it but like what it says about itself right right right, right. yeah that's very there's so much i mean again like so many books have been written to comment on this uh, this book overall, the Masnavi, and this poem especially is the most commented on. Like every commentary, for every other line, there might be just a couple lines of writing, but for this one, there's always like pages and pages. Wow. And the 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 Mevlevi uh, Sufi order, they're uh, they're like their teachers and elders. They always say it takes four decades. 
to comprehend this poem. Like after 40 <laughs> years of comprehension, so like from ages 20 to like 60, let's say, then you finally right. get it. Right, right. Well, so a lot of these amazing. poems, so, so one thing we do with this poetry program is we ask our students to study it and memorize it and then uh, send us videos of them reciting it. So hopefully we'll be getting those videos in soon. But um, I think that this poem especially is very important to memorize because of what you're saying. Like, I think that once you memorize a poem, it's like within you. Mm -hmm. And as you're living your right, life right. and like in different situations, I think that you'll like all of a sudden, like two of the lines will, will just mean something more to you and it'll just like come up. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So that happens a lot in Iranian society where everyone's just sitting around and like talking about problems or something and then someone will bust out in a poem. And they quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think this poem, along with a couple other ones, like, Agar on Turke Shirazi Bedastorat and Alaya Ehwastari like there's a few lines and phrases of poetry that like every single Persian speaker knows. So definitely anyone who's like learning Persian, it, it would be good if they could add it to like their repertoire of little lines that they could pull out. Because you'll just be like sitting in a cab and there's a few of these really famous ones that you'll always hear repeated. And people just pull it out and they mention it. And it's kind of like it's in the same way that in American culture, there's a lot of like quotes from like famous movies and famous things like that <laughs> entered pop culture. Yeah. In Iran, like it's the poems that enter the pop culture, you know, right. like, in love with poetry. So right now you're in Iran. Have you heard this one just like out in the street recently? Yeah, definitely. Really? Definitely. I, um, I walked up. Yeah, I walked up to someone who's playing the flute and uh, I gave them like some I was like the tip street performers. And they're like, oh, like, are you like a musician or something? Because I, I was I try to dress in like traditional clothes. Yeah. And a lot of times people who are into music and like art and stuff as well do that. It's like a trend among young people. Okay. So it's like, are you also a musician? Because like musicians tip other musicians. Like, I said, no, no, no. I, I work on Rumi and teaching Persian. And then he just started singing, saying Bishnah's nature. And he said a few of the lines. Nice. And, and, things. and, and yeah, definitely. And, and I one time talking about like... Um, coming to iran one guy's like why do you come to iran and i kind of gave the explanation and then he quoted right and yeah so definitely these poems come up in um in day-to-day -day speech that's great well so this this is the first uh lesson that we're doing on this poem and then there will be a series of other lessons where i'll go through um myself individually all the words and phrases and a lot of these words and phrases you can use in everyday conversation. So it's a lot of useful stuff in here. And a lot of Arabic words I don't use, but would also be... Definitely. I yeah. mean, Arabic's really... How did you learn all these words? Like, what was your process? And Sure, sure. So after a while of doing uh, Persian poetry, I became more interested in the Arabic language. Because back then, Arabic was the language of knowledge and understanding. Like, similar to English and, and French and things like that these days. You know, back then, the, the Abbasids were in Baghdad. And even though many of them were Persians, and Baghdad is even a Persian word, like the language of, of learning was in Arabic. And maybe some of our elder, elder relatives kind of remember a time when it was, it was fading, but kind of was still like that. So the Persian poets, a lot of their writing was in Arabic, because to signal that you were, like, you knew your stuff, you would quote the Arabic. So, and they were informed, they would read the Quran and, like, the Islamic scriptures as well. So all that figured into it. So at, at a certain point, I became really interested. And at the time, I was considering doing a master's. And my advisor is also an Iranian professor by the name of Cameron Amina. If he ends up listening to this, big shout out to him, at uh, Professor Amina at the University of Michigan. He said, well, if you want to increase your chances of getting into a program, 
you should really go in with two knowledges or two languages. I'm sorry. So he's like, I knew Turkish and Persian. So, and he's, he's Turkish Iranian. So I was like, uh, I guess I should learn Arabic then. You know, I like Arabic music and there's a lot of Arabic in these poems and I needed to get into the program. So let's do it. And I went to Jordan for eight, ultimately for eight months. And that's where I learned Arabic. But even still, a lot of these words are not taught in contemporary Arabic context. They're like ancient words. Okay. Like even Arabs would be like, I don't know what this word is. Like, let me look it up in a dictionary. So these are like medieval Arabic. You have to just kind of look it up then and like learn them. Yeah, a lot of times people just kind of like memorize the the meanings. Like, for example, I think like of like Christians when they say, oh, God, you know, hallowed by, be thy name, thy kingdom come as it is in heaven. Maybe they don't know what like hallowed be thy name is, but they kind of like understand the sentiments, let's say. Like when like you would Christians quote the archaic English, it's the same way in Persian. Like maybe every Iranian who quotes this poem doesn't know every single like word particularly, but the sentiments is what resonates overall. And that kind of creates the meaning. Kind of like if you're learning a language and you hear someone speak and you don't get 100% of it, but you still got it all. It's kind of the same thing. Basically. Yeah. You'd said in our uh, growing up Iranian interview that you just need to learn mm-hmm. maybe 50% and then the rest of it. It's just Definitely, like a snowball yeah, yeah. rolling. So I think that's good. And I think that it's another point of like uh, memorizing these because once you memorize them is when it really becomes uh, uh, part of you and you can use these words in conversation and, and really yeah. get going. Well, Muhammad Ali, I won't take more of your time. Thank you so no, much. No, that was that was a lot me. of fun. And uh, yeah, we'll link to Muhammad Ali's Persian Poetics on here. And he has a lot more content where he goes through you know, line by line poems with his own translations, which are very well done. Obviously, you can see with this one. (laughs) And um, and so we'll link to all that on the show notes. And until the next lesson, thank you for listening. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this wonderful lesson about Rumi's Bishno Azne with Muhammad Ali of Persian Poetics. You can see more about Muhammad Ali on his Instagram page at Persian Poetics. We'll link to that on the page of this lesson at chayangconversation.com slash lesson 91. So like I said at the end of the lesson, the goal for these lessons is to memorize these poems. That's an Iranian tradition. Most Iranians have this poem and many others memorized, and that helps them to recall these poems in situations where they're really needed. And it also helps to fully understand the meaning of the poem. And if you're trying to learn the Persian language, no matter what level you're at, it's also going to go a long way to upping your Persian language skills. So we want you to memorize these poems and then either post them on Instagram and tag us at Chiang Conversation or email them to us at Layla at if you're not on social media. Our podcast is always free, but to get the most out of these lessons, you can sign up for a free 30-day trial membership of our program at ChiangConversation.com. We give you all the tools you need to truly learn the Persian language and to truly learn the words and phrases in this poetry. So go check it out at our website, chaiandconversation.com. And that's a free 30-day trial. And that's it for now. Until next time, Khuda Hafiz from Layla. Thanks for listening. <laughs>